0: This is Asha Voices. I'm JD Gray. A woman wakes up. She's not dizzy, but she doesn't have a sense of balance. The root of the condition lies within the inner ear, a condition of the vestibular nerve. Today on ASHA Voices, we speak to the director of the Johns Hopkins Vestibular Neuroengineering Lab. He tells us how a new device may help restore a sense of balance to those with bilateral vestibular loss, a condition he estimates severely affects between 60 and 100,000 adults in the U.S. Call it the cochlear implant's cousin, this device is stimulating the inner ear and allowing this patient and others to get back on their feet. This is ASHA Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from Weave Communications. Did you know 80% of people never leave voicemails? With Weave, automatic customizable texts are sent from your office number to missed callers. Keeping the conversation open. Learn more at weavepartners.com/Asha. Support for Asha Voices is also provided by CapTel from T-Mobile, saluting professionals like you who are committed to providing inclusive communication for everyone, regardless of their income, technology access, or needs. And they put your patients first with exceptional care 24-7. Learn more at t-mobile.com slash CapTel. In the middle of the night, Andrea Elise Messer woke up and without notice, she had lost her sense of balance.
1: Getting up and... Getting to the bathroom was a challenge, so I did that, I got back in bed, figuring I'd wake up in the morning and everything would be fine. That didn't happen.
0: What did happen was that Andrea woke up with bilateral vestibular loss or bilateral vestibular hypofunction. We'll talk about why this might have happened later in the episode, but the important thing to know now is that her vestibular system was not working and that meant Andrea was terribly off balance. She called her doctor. A friend took Andrea to the doctor's office where she was pushed to the door in a wheelchair. The doctor sent her to an audiologist.
1: And? the audiologist told me that I didn't have any balance function anymore.
0: Can I ask this sense of imbalance? Is this more similar to being on a boat or getting off of a merry-go-round?
1: It's not like either of those. It's not vertigo. It's not dizziness. (laughs) It isn't like anything I had ever experienced before. It's... An absence of a vertical. There's no upright. And it takes a while to learn to judge upright using vision and the rest of your body.
0: With practice and time, Andrea was able to adjust. She could use her vision and perception to walk in well-lit areas, but even after she improved at reading cues, the challenges persisted as she compensated for the faulty inner ear nerve that caused her condition.
1: Walking required so much energy that I could get about a block and a half and then I'd have to stop. The muscles in my neck and my back would just be exhausted, and by the end of the day, I was just basically toast.
0: There are a couple things you should know about Andrea. She's a science writer. Most days she works in front of a computer. She writes articles about subjects like earth and mineral sciences for Penn State. But also she's an archaeologist. She spends time at dig sites, or she did before the bilateral vestibular loss.
1: I went out in the field to see if I could do any archaeology and realized that even with a cane, it was far too dangerous for me to be around open pits and uneven ground especially if I was trying to carry buckets of dirt Mm -hmm. or anything like that.
0: This was just one of the new limitations Andrea found herself facing. Here's another example. Because she relied on visual cues, if the power were to go out in her house, Andrea says she couldn't do anything. Anything that required a good sense of balance was impossible, especially in the dark.
1: Well, after a while, I was thinking that something has to be done. I went looking online and every single thing about this disability that I came across usually ended by saying, most patients become housebound. I wasn't willing to accept that.
0: In part because Andrea is a science writer, she was able to navigate her way into a trial for a medical device, a multi-channel vestibular implant. It's a device that works like a cochlear implant, but for the vestibular system. And it holds a lot of hope for people like Andrea. Quick spoiler, Andrea qualified for the trial, and we'll be catching up with her at the beginning of the second half of this episode. But first, we're going to meet the doctor behind this device.
2: My name is Charlie Della Santina. I'm a professor of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and biomedical engineering at Johns Hopkins. I'm the director of the Johns Hopkins Vestibular Neuroengineering Lab. The vestibular system really has two main roles. One is sensing how your head is oriented with respect to gravity, and the other is how it's moving. And that sense of which way is up you get largely from your inner ears, you know, plus your other senses.
0: Someone can use those other senses, like sight, to help with activities like walking, but the continued effort it takes to use these cues can be exhausting. Charlie and his team extrapolated national health interview survey data to estimate that there are between 60,000 and 100,000 adults in the U.S. bothered by symptoms from bilateral vestibular loss. Roughly a third of people with bilateral vestibular loss acquire the condition from autotoxic injury. Charlie says these cases can often be linked to a drug used to treat an infection in another part of the body. Andrea says her symptoms began about two weeks after receiving gentamicin. Though some cases are genetic, most cases are idiopathic, there's no known cause. For people like Andrea it can become incredibly difficult to navigate the world without the vestibular system helping you to process movement
2: imagine if you put a camera in your teeth and you shot some video while walking around you'd end up with a shaky video that looks a lot like those videos from the cops tv show when the cameraman is chasing after a guy running away everything's very shaky that's exactly what you would see if you didn't have a vestibular ocular reflex and other reflexes to keep your eyes on target. Every time your head rotates ten degrees up, your eyes have to immediately rotate ten degrees down at about the same speed for you to see a smooth visual world that doesn't look like it's shaking. And if you lose that function, if you lose the, the vestibular part of that system, then especially for you know kind of the jiggly rapid movements that you have when your heel hits the ground while walking or if you're riding or trying to drive in a car, you have the shaky vision. The word for that is oscillopsia, And
0: this, along with an improved ability to stand and walk and some cognitive relief, is what is targeted with the device stimulating the vestibular nerve.
2: The idea, I think, is easy for anyone to understand in the context of a cochlear implant. With a cochlear implant, if you have someone who can't hear because their inner ear hair cells aren't sensitive to sound naturally anymore, you could bypass that system by using a microphone to measure a sound, and then uh, electrically stimulating parts of the cochlear nerve with a set of different electrodes that you insert in the cochlea. A vestibular implant, it's directly analogous. Instead of a microphone, you have a motion sensor, which in our case is sensing head rotational motion. And then you have a set of electrodes that, instead of being put in the cochlea, are put near the branches of the vestibular nerve, that go to the three semicircular canals that normally sense head rotation.
0: So part of it, is similar to a cochlear implant. There's a surgery. It goes inside the head, and then is the sensor placed on the outside of the head?
2: Yeah, like all commercially available cochlear implants, it's a semi-implantable system. With a vestibular implant, same idea. The sensor in this case is actually outside of the body. It's on the head-worn part of the external where there's a magnet and a coil to hold that device over the implant's magnet and coil, and therefore when you move your head, that sensor is measuring head movement, and we're conveying signals to the implant to tell it how to stimulate.
0: To help me understand how the motion is translated to the vestibular nerve, Charlie compared the rotational sensors to the motion sensors inside of a cell phone. Motion is tracked on three axes, X, Y, and Z. And the vestibular nerve connected to the three semicircular canals is stimulated accordingly.
2: I think another way of thinking about it would be when you turn on the image stabilizer on your cell phone, What it's doing is it's looking at the image as it comes in, and it's looking at the signal from the motion sensor in your phone. And when you rotate the phone a little bit, pitching it up and down like you were saying, yes, then the computer in your phone can then shift the where the camera's focus is a little bit up and down to compensate for that rotation. And the reason that's so important is picture if you're looking at a I don't know, a sign in the distance when you're trying to drive a car and you're looking way down the freeway at a sign, if you rotate your head just a fraction of a degree, you won't be looking at that sign anymore. And we need to compensate for that head rotation. On the other hand, if your head just moved up and down a millimeter or so, you'd still be looking straight at the sign and that wouldn't be a problem. So we're really focused on correcting for that loss of sensation in head rotation so that we can try to keep your eyes on target.
0: How did you come to think of using this sensor and creating a system similar to the cochlear implant? Did you look directly at the cochlear implant for inspiration, or did you come about this sort of circuitously?
2: Well, I think a lot of people came at it in different ways. As far as I know, the first effort to make a little circuit that you could call a vestibular prosthesis, it was published by Wang Song Gong and Dan Merfeld, two men who were working at uh, Mass Eye and Ear Institute in Boston at the time. But, you know, we can go all the way back to studies from the 1960s by Suzuki and Cohen, who effectively did this before in animals. You know, the year before I was born, they were publishing articles showing that if you can put some wire electrodes in the inner ear near these nerve branches and electrically stimulate them, you can get the eyes to move reflexively in a way that lines up with the canals that you're stimulating. Now, they were doing it just to work out how the physiology and the anatomy of that system works, but they effectively were demonstrating that you could make a vestibular implant all the way back in the 1960s. We went then as a field through decades of development and refinement of cochlear implants, trying to address this important problem of uh, hearing loss and, and particularly children who are born without access to sound having greater difficulty learning spoken languages. So there's a pressing need to develop cochlear implants as I mentioned before, a vestibular sensation, it's a little bit uh, of a silent sense. It's much less well-known to people. And so that didn't develop until, say, around 2000 or so, when Dan Murfeld and his colleagues uh, looked at it and said, well, you know, we have all the parts of a cochlear implant in place. Couldn't we swap out the microphone and put a motion sensor? I think another way to look at this is that a lot of good ideas come from just looking at some... Thing that's working in one field and just asking how you can adapt it and reuse it for something else. And a vestibular implant in many ways can only exist because of all the work that went into developing cochlear implants. And that's not just the technology, it's the whole infrastructure. You know, how do you provide care to people with a vestibular implant? Well, it's probably going to be largely based on the models of care and device development and support that are already in place for cochlear implants.
0: This highlights the need for interprofessional practice. I understand that the patients that you worked with, they saw an audiologist as well. There are multiple care providers involved in this team, correct?
2: Oh, of course. In this case, there are engineers, there are surgeons, there are audiologists, uh, there are rehab therapists, specifically rehab therapists, and, and others as well. I think that a a neurologist is an important member to have in the future vestibular implant team to make sure that you're not putting a vestibular implant in a patient who really has a central nervous system problem, not an inner ear problem. An interesting thought is that there really isn't a well-defined single person who would be the best professional suited to programming a vestibular implant in the future. If you look at cochlear implants, that's obviously an audiologist who's sort of well-trained in working with cochlear implants, but many audiologists in clinical practice really focus on hearing and are much less involved in the vestibular side. Often vestibular care is more in the hands of a mix of otolaryngologists, neurologists, and vestibular rehab therapists. We're going to have to create a a new field that will include a new professional classification of a person who's a vestibular implant audiologist, most likely, because I think the people best suited to doing this would be people who already know how to do cochlear implant care.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, the device is activated, and we'll hear from an audiologist who specializes in the vestibular system. Support for Asha Voices comes from Weave Communications. When building up an audiology practice, you need the right tools to get the job done. Weave's single, unified platform equips you with every tool you need to interact with your customers via phone, text, email, or chat. As Shannon from AAA Hearing puts it, quote, in our practice, we have many deaf patients, with Weave, we can better fit their needs and communicate more efficiently with them via text, end quote. Learn more at weavepartners.com asha. Support for Asha Voices is also provided by CapTel from T-Mobile. CapTel from T-Mobile shares your values and commitment to patients, providing inclusive communication for everyone regardless of their income, technology access, or needs. They offer captioned telephones with exceptional 24-7 care, simple one-button access to U.S.-based customer services reps, and phones that fit your patients' needs. CAPTEL from T-Mobile puts your patients first. Check them out at t-mobile.com slash CAPTEL. Only for people with hearing loss, federally funded, requires certification and registration, restrictions apply. The way the vestibular implant device is activated is similar to a cochlear implant. Both devices require surgery, and they're both activated a few weeks after implantation the process reminded me of a conversation I had on this podcast with Carrie Spangler, an audiologist who received a cochlear implant. She shared a video with me of the moment her cochlear implant was activated. She was sitting at a conference table with a window behind her. You could see and hear the highway through that office window. When I asked her about the moment the cochlear implant was activated, she told me she was thinking that she was hearing beeps, whistles, and chirps. I wondered if those receiving the vestibular implant had in any way a similar experience. I asked Andrea what the scene was like when her device was
1: activated. Well, it wasn't anything as dramatic as that, unfortunately. I was sitting, and it was activated, and I was suddenly off balance, but in the sense of knowing that that I was off balance, not just having no balance and I leaned over to the side there was somebody behind me to keep me from falling off the chair and then I you know was centered on the chair and I just sat there um, without movement there's no notice that the device is actually doing anything
0: Charlie expected the patients to feel off balance in fact he was worried they might experience
2: that sensation for weeks our experience has been so far that the initial activation, you know, feels a little bit like if you got on a merry-go-round with your eyes closed, it initially starts feeling like you're spinning, but really pretty quickly, you know, within minutes, few minutes, people acclimate and they say, well, yeah, I don't feel dizzy. I don't feel like I'm spinning anymore. And then from that point on, we can start modulating the strength of the stimulus up and down on different channels giving their brain a signal that tells them that they're turning their head left and right or up and down. We hand them a a volleyball and ask them to show us what they feel their head is doing and typically they show it rotating uh, around the axis of the canal that we're trying to stimulate or some kind of mix of those different directions um, which we would interpret as the stimulus current is spreading to more than one branch of the nerve and stimulating multiple of them at one time. If we turn the current up really high, we can give them a a sound percept because some of that current can get to the cochlear nerve or it could even stimulate the facial nerve because that's not too far away from there and cause your face to feel like it's twitching a bit. So ultimately we tune this to where we can get the effect that we want without any of the senses that we don't want. And then we uh, make some measurements and have the patient get up and walk around with us in the clinic. And they usually look pretty unstable for the first 20 minutes or so, You know, I might uh, hold the arm of a patient as we're walking for the first few minutes, but usually by the end of a 5- or 10-minute walk around the clinic, they're getting around on their own. They adapt usually overnight, and usually by the time I see them the next morning, they feel significantly better than they did before. Even if
0: the moment of activation isn't particularly dramatic, the results seem to be. According to Charlie, overall, the experience has been positive. He says he asks all participants at their check-ins if they would continue using the device. They all say yes. He asks if they would advise a twin to receive the same device if needed. And again, they all say yes.
2: And over the course of the following weeks to hmm, a couple months, uh, they typically come back and say, yeah, I feel like I have more security when I walk. I don't feel I have to look at my feet on the floor as I'm walking. They usually say that their oscillopsia, that shakiness of the vision, is improved, not all the way, but you know, somewhere between, say, 30 and 70% would be a typical subjective number that they read out. And then in the longer run, people usually come back and say, yeah, overall, I feel that when I have this stimulation compared to before surgery, I'm able to do things that used to be automatic for me, like talking to somebody on the phone while walking, that I had just given up doing before and i didn't realize just how limited i was in that respect i was spending so much of my effort compensating for my loss of balance
0: there's something else that's important to note about the recipients of the vestibular devices following the invasive surgery to implant the device the participants reported
2: hearing loss i should emphasize that when you do an implant in the inner ear there are risks of that surgery Uh, the most important i think would be the risk of hearing loss and now we've had four people who've preserved useful hearing, that they talk, uh, they can have a conversation without a hearing aid. We've had three who've had a profound hearing loss, and we've had one who's recently implanted and kind of evolving. But that means that, that the risk of hearing loss is going to be probably a major determinant of whether someone chooses to have an implant until we as a field move to the point where we can make everybody have the same good hearing outcomes that about half of our patients so far have had.
0: This Is hearing loss in one ear?
2: It's only in the ear that's implanted. So it's only one ear. And people asked about, well, could you put a second implant in the other ear? And of course you could, but I would only consider it if the first ear had good hearing and was stable for a number of years after.
0: Andrea says she lost some hearing in her right ear from the surgery. She meets with an audiologist every time she visits Baltimore for a checkup on her implant, but she doesn't wear a hearing aid. When I spoke with her, she had recently had a check-in with Charlie and his team.
1: I learned that my hearing was not getting any worse Um, and my device was reprogrammed and from what I can tell is slightly improved in dealing with the oscillopsia, the eye movement up and down, that is still not completely synced to my head movement. And So this is a programming adjustment that they've made. And other than that, you know, everything's working fine.
0: An article about the implant and the device was published on the website for the New England Journal of Medicine. Along with that was a video. And in that video, there's a short interview with Andrea, recorded a couple of months after the device was activated. In that video, she says, quote, I frankly think it's miraculous, the difference in my life from before to now, end quote. asked her to tell us a little more about those differences.
1: Sure. Well, for one thing, I'm no longer exhausted. I don't have that feeling of constantly having to be on alert. I'm not concerned about falling all the time. Mentally, it's a huge relief. I can get up from a chair and walk into the next room without thinking about it. I can go out at night. I can walk anywhere I want, grass, sand, snow, without being concerned. I no longer use a cane.
0: In the video of Andrea, on the website of the New England Journal of Medicine, Charlie asks, if you had to do this over again, would you still receive the implant? A question he alluded to earlier. She says absolutely that she would. I asked her if she still felt that way.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember what it was like without the device. There are a lot of things that I want to do still, and... Without this device, I wouldn't be able to do it. There's some archaeological stuff I want to do. There's some hiking I want to do. And without the device, there's no way that I would be able to do that. I'm used to having really good balance. I danced when I was younger. I played sports. And not having that balance, if I trip, and I did once trip, I have no way of recovering. It's very hard to recover when you don't know where you are to start with. And so, yeah, I would do it again and happily.
0: I'm going to bring an audiologist into the conversation now. Elena Bassett is the director of the USC Balance Center, where she works with patients to assess vestibular dysfunction and manage vestibular impairments. This includes patients with bilateral vestibular loss.
3: It's a patient population that I'm worried about because these individuals obviously have hobbies and activities and perhaps high-intensity lifestyles that are challenging to lead with such a significant vestibular loss.
0: Elena says she works with physical therapists at USC who help patients perform exercises to recalibrate their balance systems, but Elena says she would be thrilled if this device presented an opportunity for this patient population to restore some portion of their vestibular function
3: when we think of our balance system, it's visual, vestibular, and somatosensory. So when we take away the vestibular portion, we're relying on what we can see and what we can feel beneath our feet and ankles.
0: And Elena says to consider what this might mean for someone with a visual impairment, someone with neuropathy, or even someone simply walking over uneven ground, like sand.
3: So it's the interplay between these three parts that's constantly keeping us upright. And if we remove one piece of that triangle, That's where things can get really challenging. People aren't just their vestibular systems. There's a whole host of other things that can happen to you in regards to your feet and ankles and your eyes. It's never just one thing.
0: This is why it can be so difficult for someone like Andrea before the implant when the power goes out or when she visits a dig site with uneven ground.
3: Patients that enjoy mountain biking or patients that enjoy walking on the beach with their loved one. Although walking on your beach with your loved one may not seem like a really high intensity activity, but if our vestibular system is unable to determine the position of our head in space, and we're walking over an uneven surface such as the sand, where we're not getting good information about where our feet are placed as we're moving from point A to point B, and we're relying solely on our vision, it can be a very, very challenging walk. And to have someone lose that type of quality of life, is one of the more challenging things about this so to have extra support would be great at the end of the day
0: ask asked charlie what was next for the device and the research he says they're trying to get the device to more people that need it by seeking a humanitarian device exemption approval from the fda and he's imagining what the future of the technology could look like maybe that means an implanted battery or combining the device with a cochlear implant to help with the hearing loss. A lot of possibilities are on the
2: horizon. And you can do a thought exercise, think about the world of cochlear implants and everyone who works in that field. You know, there are audiologists, there are surgeons, there are rehab therapists, there are engineers, there are clinical support people, manufacturers, purchasing agents, psychiatrists, psychologists, neurologists, there's a whole field of people in addition to researchers that we need to create for the future of vestibular implant care.
0: A quick reflection, what does it mean to you that this device appears to be working?
2: It's really exciting. I mean, consider that I've I've been at this for 20 years now. And throughout that time, I've gotten to know a lot of people who are severely affected by bilateral vestibular loss. These are my friends. And the fact that we're on the verge now of being able to offer these folks something that will help them is really gratifying and it's inspiring. Medical device development is often a, a long, hard, challenging road, but there's a very bright light at the end of that tunnel, and it's nice to see that you know, we're within reach of it now.
0: And thanks to your technology, it might stay steady. <laughs> yeah, exactly. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. I want to give a special thank you to Elena Bassett from the USC Balance Center for taking the time to help me understand the vestibular system and how it helps people stay on their feet. Support for ASHA Voices comes from Weave Communications. 90% of patients want to communicate via text. From messaging and missed call texts to collecting Google reviews via text, Weave unlocks the power of texting. Learn more at weavepartners.com slash ASHA. Support for ASHA Voices is also provided by CapTel from T-Mobile. With captioned phones that fit every patient regardless of their income, technology access, or needs, CapTel from T-Mobile serves the unique hearing needs of every patient. Learn more at t-mobile.com CapTel. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray and this is ASHA Voices.